Thank you. Please be seated. Well, as I mentioned, we're switching 2 Peter to the evening. And if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we go to 2 Peter chapter 2. Um, many things are tied up in this passage. Uh, the description of God's judgment and salvation in a variety of ways in the ancient world. We read about uh, Noah and his family being delivered through water, eight eight and all. Um, We uh, read about uh, um, their uh, uh, salvation. What does it say here? Yep. Uh, Okay, and uh, we're going to be concentrating on uh, Lot, this uh, preacher of righteousness. But let's go back and pick up, starting together in verse 2, and uh, we'll read down through verse 11. Uh, Concentrating mostly on Lot this evening, but we'll get the whole matter before us. Many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed by covetousness. They will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood of the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those afterward who would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They're presumptuous, self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Let's pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, you have appointed in your church to be uh, the help to your people, those who teach your word. We know what a blessing good teaching is to the soul and what detriment false teaching may be. Therefore, we pray that in this confusing day that you would make these words again to live to us, that you would uh, lead us all together through these things and help us to navigate the truth of the, the, the difficulties of this world through the truth of your word. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, how are we to live godly lives in an ungodly world? How are we specifically to relate to people whose uh, life choices, let's say, are quite different from ours and, more importantly, from the Lord's? Augustine once wrote in a letter that we should live, quote, with love for mankind and hatred for sins. Love for mankind and hatred for sins. Well, that certainly sounds good and easy enough. Augustine also wrote elsewhere that a sinful man is to be hated insofar as he is a sinner. He's a sinner, but loved insofar as he's a man. So adding a little more nuance and those things might be the origin of the phrase that you might have heard, uh, hate the sin, but love the sinner. Um, Augustine, a little more nuanced in that, but uh, probably the uh, one who has uh, left us that legacy, although it came to us, I guess, more recently through Mahatma Gandhi, interestingly, who noted in his autobiography, quote, hate the sin and not the sinner is a precept which though easy enough to understand, is rarely practiced. And that is why it is the poison of hatred that spreads in the world, end quote. Well, Gandhi is right that it is very difficult, if not impossible, to have our loves and hatreds so neatly set out. It's very difficult when we're in a real relationship with 
real people whom we love to uh, help them to uh, both uh, know that love that we have for them and, the, and, and to feel the weight of the truth that we have to tell them to hold these things in tension. There is something very right about Augustine's statement. Certainly, we're called to love everyone, even our enemies, said Jesus. And that hatred that we are to have for sinful people, which comes up often enough in the Psalms, for instance, we understand, as I sometimes explain to you, not, uh, not ill will by any means, but displeasure that uh, we are not at all pleased with the wicked and their deeds in that sense, hatred. Well, we live in a complicated age, but not unlike the ancient world. We, we live at a time in which uh, we find simple slogans often fail us. Uh, they don't give us much practical help as we seek to have a difficult relationship and hard conversations with people whom we do love, but who need to hear the truth from us just as well. It takes a great deal more discernment and grace when we are seeking to live as Daniels in Babylon or Obadiahs in Ahab's houses or Abijahs in the family of Jeroboam or, as our passage mentions today, like a righteous man in Sodom. Well, it is this difficult tension that I'm going to be bringing before you today. I'm going to be skipping a couple of uh, verses that I'll hope to pick up next time and focus in just specifically on this matter of Lot and what him and this story of his life and struggle that's summarized here can tell us about living godly lives in a sinful world and maintaining such conversations and relationships. Well, let me remind you of the larger story that Peter refers to here as we begin. Abraham brought Lot to Canaan with him as he had received that call from the Lord. And so uh, Lot, being a special companion uh, in his journey, came with him. They were both blessed. They both became rich, so much so that they found that they couldn't live together any longer and keep up their large herds. And so Abraham gave Lot the choice of the country. Lot looked over the well-watered plains of the Jordan toward the south, which were near Sodom. The pasture was rich. The land was good. And so we are told first that he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Um, a chapter later, the next time he's mentioned, we read that he dwelt in Sodom. And uh, then by the end, we read of Lot uh, sitting at the city gate probably meaning that he had become a man of influence there, if not an elder of the city. So we think, well, maybe good for a righteous lot. Here he is, a man of influence, a godly man, sitting in the gate of an ungodly city. And how hard it is to influence an immoral land for good, we have some sympathy for his situation. Well, we know also what it's like to live in a rich but immoral land, don't we? There certainly is a great danger involved even in dwelling in such a place as we do. Some people have thought, as things are getting more difficult here, perhaps should we move? Um, you know, our forefathers crossed an ocean when things were getting uh, pretty bad over in Leiden. Maybe we should uh, find if there's some other South Sea island somewhere. I don't know. Um, should we move? Should we at least avoid immoral people to the best of our ability? Well, the Bible says... In fact, there are some immoral people that we must not keep company with. Did you know that? Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. I wrote you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, he says, I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world, or the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or so forth, a drunkard, extortioner, and so forth. Not even to eat with such a person, for what have I to do with judging those who are outside? But do you not judge those who are inside? Those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves 
the evil person. All right. Did you get that? There are immoral people that we are to have no fellowship with, namely those who claim Christ but who live like the devil. Not just for our soul's sake, but for their sake, for the sake of the watching world, for the honor of Christ, for the good of the church, and for many other reasons more than I can get into tonight. I mean, if that person's going to be saved, he needs to know that he's lost. And part of that knowing is to clarify the situation. So, uh, Peter, in this letter, you notice, is absolutely scathing toward these teachers who are seducing the church and leading it astray, okay? Um, uh, You know, the the people of this world that are immoral, uh, woman at the well, uh, 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 tax collectors and sinners, the people that Jesus is dining with, they they, they get a lot of sympathy, right? I mean, the Lord is honest with them about the issues in their lives, right? Yeah, you've you've had five husbands, right? But, but, But the tone is not nearly, nearly as strong. This letter illustrates the absolute division that must take place between those who claim the name of Christ and those who, in works, deny it. So, Jesus expressly says, I don't pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Our our calling is to be in the world, to go into the world in so many ways and make disciples without the world getting into us. We, We must be a sanctified people, not separate from sinners, but sanctified from sin. We are sent into the world and we have to maintain this tension, this very difficult tension, right? To be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, as the Lord says elsewhere, and not to be hiding ourselves under a basket. We cannot leave this world. We cannot hide ourselves away from it and be faithful to such passages. Jesus himself was called the friend of tax collectors and sinners. I'll return to him later, but my point is this. Lot went to go live in Sodom. Was that a wise choice? Perhaps not. But I am not going to get up here and say, well, be like Lot and don't go live in a rich immoral land. Because then you find we have to find the South Sea Island to get to. Okay. All right. I'm not going to blame Lot for living in a rich but immoral land. The problem is when the land gets in you, which is inevitable, I realize, by fallen creatures to some extent. But it proved very costly for Lot's family. Now, the Lord had finally had enough. The wickedness was crying out to him, so he sent two angels into Sodom incognito. Lot, being the righteous and hospitable man that he was, knowing very well that his neighbors were likely to abuse these guests to the city, um, urged them, compelled them to stay with him. It's very clear that Lot was seeking to do the right thing and was certainly a man of faith. He was grieved by Sodom's wickedness. He sought to protect these guests from it. He took them under the protection of his own home. He did not participate himself in the wickedness of that place. He refused to give in even when the lustful mob gathered outside his home, demanding that he bring those men out. He said, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly, uh, telling him like it is, making a nice appeal. The point, it's at this point that Lot very horribly and inexcusably says, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they've come under the shadow of my roof. Not defending him at all on that. He's on his own. We remember also how Abraham, by the way, twice was ready to let his wife suffer the abuse of men if he could save his own skin. No excuse for Abraham either. Seems to be a family sin in some ways. But, you know, uh, Lot, 
even facing down uh, a mob outside the house, he should have said, death before dishonor, right? Over my dead body, which is almost what happened to him. The, the men of Sodom, when they heard this appeal, said, stand back. This one came in here to stay, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. All right. <laughs> if you thought it was going to be bad for those guys, wait till you see what we do to you. Probably means death, right? Okay. Um, Lot, you notice, was, caused, was called judgmental. He called those men wicked, even if he did it with a nice please statement, right? He was called judgmental. He was attacked. He almost paid dearly, probably with his life, for putting his foot down and defending the innocent. Um, so, uh, you know, that's much more than people do today. Sometimes people say, oh, Lot, how could, how could he be regarded as a righteous man? All right, he almost paid with his life for putting his foot down and defending the innocent. That's more than most people do today. Children today being permanently damaged physically, mentally, spiritually, and Christians can't be bothered to pick up the phone and call the senator, right? I'm not defending Lot. I'm not defending uh, what he said when the angry, lustful mob gathered outside his, his house. The Bible deals very honestly about the grievous sins of the best of saints. The Bible's a very real book. But I am explaining why you notice three times in our text in Peter, it says that Lot was a righteous man. He was a man with a tormented soul when he saw such things going on. Well, if Abraham is the father of the faithful, we might say Lot is the father of all those who are saved is through fire because God's judgment then in short order fell on the city. Lot, who was still lingering, um, also can't be defended in any way. He had to be pulled out with his family to save his life and theirs. Lost everything in the process. It seems that he did Precious little good in Sodom, if any. He may have been a preacher of righteousness, as Noah was, but in the end, there were no righteous people in the whole city outside the walls of his home, and his home was badly marked. What happened to his family? His wife didn't escape, right? Uh, she looked back, despite the very plain command not to do so, and she was immediately judged. Lot's two unmarried daughters soon proved to have been thoroughly ruined by their life in Sodom. The rest of the family didn't make it out. I'll spare you the details. Well, what do we learn from such a striking account about living in the same kind of world as Lot? The passage in Peter's letter certainly tells us that, well, we must hate the sin and love the sinner. And it gives us a little more nuance to that phrase, so maybe a little more help that I hope will be of some help to you as you seek to have those difficult conversations and relationships in this world. It's very plain that we must be in the world without worldliness being in us. My first point to you, we must be in the world without worldliness being in us. Part of the righteousness Lot has in this passage in Peter is that this man who dwelt among them was tormented in his righteous soul. It says that righteous man dwelling among him was tormented in his righteous soul from day to day by hearing and seeing their lawless deeds. Uh, Lot, Lot hated the sin. He was grieved and pained at the sight of of that sin. And, you know, sins don't abstractly float around, right? Um, when sinful men were doing sinful things, it boiled his blood as it should. Psalm 119, rivers of water run down my eyes because men do not keep your law. 119, I am disgusted because they do not keep your word. You ever feel disgusted? You ever feel like you're just going to cry because not just 
there's sin, but wicked people doing wicked things, it, it was a torment to that righteous man. And it wasn't just a torment at the beginning. As you know, it's easy to get accustomed to things, right? It says he was tormented from day to day. He didn't become cool or lukewarm about sin. As, you know, you watch enough Netflix and after a while the edge is off a little bit. You maybe were scandalized at the beginning, but not so much at the end. Um, No, no, no. Our safety lies in part that we are still shocked and offended by sin. And if you find your conscience getting seared, getting dull, then you need to shut it off, shut off the device and start to read the word, right? Because it's just too easy for us to begin to accept the sins of the people around us whom we love. It's only natural. The Bible doesn't use terms like peer pressure or societal contagion or other sociological words, but I tell you it has plenty to say on the matter. Proverbs 13 Whoever walks with the wise become wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. We're going to suffer the more that we spend and talk to others, as we must, as we should, as, as Paul says, we ought to do. It will damage us. We constantly need to be on guard, moving back the boundaries in our own heart to where the Lord has set them. One of the best things parents can do is to help their young children especially select the right group of godly friends because those children, and especially then when they become young adults, they are very influenced by the people with whom they associate. They don't don't think they are. They think that, oh, they're they're their own person now. (laughs) More than ever, they are influenced by the peer group. I I remember I was sitting in my college class and the professor made some question that way. How many of you think that, you know, you're... Um, now, you know, thinking on your own and so forth here, like all of our hands went up, right? Yeah, so like we're all our own people now. Like, he said, how many of you are wearing blue jeans, right? This is the 1980s. Every one of us was wearing blue jeans, girls and guys. That's just the way it was, right? Uh, you know, the, po- the point is uh, we, we, may, we may think that uh, we have a, uh, um, that, that we're a- above that kind of influence, but we are deeply influenced by the people we associate with, um, Proverbs is full of such warnings then. My son, if sinners entice you, do not give in to them. Realizing there's a special enticement that wicked people like to give to righteous people. It's, it's not enough to do wickedness on your own. You have to get somebody else to do it with you. Um, so Paul writes, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Uh, they're also making a quote. Well, anyway. Paul instructs Timothy to be patient and gentle, praying that God might lead the one going astray to repentance, as he did for us. God, maybe God will grant them repentance. Um, but he goes on to say that there is a time that you have to just avoid such people that are causing divisions and, 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 and causing offenses and teaching things contrary to what you know, Right? There's, there's the difference between the woman at the well and the people that Peter is writing about, right? One gets, the, 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 one, the woman at the well, she gets kid gloves. Jesus brings up issues. It's very nice conversation. Peter blasts the cannons, okay? Big difference. All sin is deceptive. But there is, the Bible recognizes, a particular deception that goes with uh, the sins of desire, the sins that your flesh actually would like to commit. So the deceitfulness of sin is particularly uh, strong in the second chapter of Peter. Um, we realize that uh, there is something special about sexual sins just in the composition of, of our humanity, right? I mean, people could be violated or abused for literally a matter of seconds and their life is changed forever believe me i know i've talked talked to many people if i don't have a pastor oop, it comes out they, they want somebody to talk to about what's happened it, uh, there is something about these particular sins that are very close to the soul and so in all these things we are uh, warned here by the apostle We are given very, very strong language to wake us up that we should not become dull. 
our conscience seared, convincing ourselves, or as the Bible says, deceiving ourselves, not to believe what we know is in fact right, suppressing the truth and accommodating the most wicked sins or immoral lifestyles, as they prefer to say today, but you and I know the truth. A few weeks ago, we read about a downward spiral that was the undoing of our human race since the fall. Doubting the word leads to denying the Lord, leads to destroying many lives. And that destruction comes in through the church itself. People that are secretly among us, deceiving teachers, deceiving desires. And so we need to be on guard that this sin, uh, this uh, worldliness can come in not only to the believer, but to the church as well in the same way. One more comment before I move on here. When you think of cruelty, you usually think of things like, you know, people torturing animals or terrorists blowing up buildings or people abusing children or something like that. You probably wouldn't think of heresy being cruel, but uh, there is this book with an intriguing title, The Cruelty of Heresy, that shows just how cruel the consequences of heresy are in the life. Probably concentrating too much on the cruelty of this life, but heresy is cruel. It destroys lives, not only for eternity, but in this age. Similarly, John MacArthur writes, quote, nothing is more wicked than for someone to claim to speak for God to the salvation of souls, when in reality, he speaks for Satan to the damnation of souls. I'm going to have a whole sermon on this, but this is why the warning bell is being rung, right? The, uh, the alarm is coming here. Uh, Peter finishes off his letter. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led astray by the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, a long point, we must be in the world without worldliness being in us. No, no surprises for that point or the, or the next point, but simply to reinforce to you that this is the struggle that we face, a struggle that is to the death with many casualties. Second, we must continue to seek the salvation of the world. We must continue to seek the salvation of the world. Um, the passage is telling us about the destruction of the wicked and emphasizing here that the Lord knows how to deliver the righteous from their midst, just as Noah and his family delivered in the judgment of the ancient world, just as Lot uh, was uh, delivered. So the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of those temptations. So the, the other side of this here, we must continue to seek the salvation of the world, um, or in a word, we must love the sinner. Okay? And how do you love the sinner most? Well, certainly in this passage, by pointing them to the salvation that has come to us in Jesus. The truth that offends is the truth that sets men free and that makes them alive and brings them back to God. The fact that we are sinners and that Christ has come to save men from their sins, well, that offends, but it also sets them free and makes them alive. And the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible is an image of the judgment to come as it's listed here that the entire world, no matter what their practices, are like Sodom. And that the godly, his point here, uh, will be delivered like Lot. That Christ has come to save those from that judgment to come. And, of course, if Lot's history illustrates anything about this salvation, it's that salvation has to be by grace and grace alone, right? There is much to criticize in Lot's life. Uh, boy, the, uh, the, the thing with getting drunk afterward and the daughters don't even want to go there, right? The, uh, why is he lingering in the city when they said, up, get out, right? Um, why is he offering his daughters? It, it, it seems that the man had plenty to, to, to criticize, right? Righteous he, as he was in other things, 
we, we realize that in so many ways, this man falls far short of what he should have been. And this just illustrates all the more that salvation is of grace and grace alone. He, he proved himself in some ways a compromiser and in some ways a believing man. And the Lord saved him. And Peter chooses, of all the people he could choose, this story to illustrate that judgment awaits this world, just like Sodom, but that the Lord knows how to deliver the, the godly like Lot. And if Lot's a godly man, well, then so am I. Okay? There's some, there's some encouragement there. That a true Christian may have a great many faults, a great many sins, many remaining corruptions, and yet be true Christians. Right? Or as uh, J.C. Ryle puts it, you don't despise gold because it's mixed up with some dross. Right? You know, you don't, you don't get that 20-carat uh, gold ring and just throw it away and say, ah, it's, it's not 24-carat. All right. Um, we, we must not undervalue the grace that exists, even if it's small, even if it's accompanied by much corruption. Uh, Lot did pay dearly for his sins, and yet he was called righteous three times. He was a child of God, and we will see him again. And the good news for sinful people in stories like Noah, who had his own issues, Lot, like this, is that God has provided salvation for sinners. And unlike fallen angels, whom he mentions first, who had no opportunity to be saved, God will save us in Jesus. Jesus illustrates what it means to have that love that we are talking about. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Well, Jesus loved the sinner in that he was a friend of sinners. I explain. He descended from heavenly majesty to a manger in Bethlehem and was born in the likeness of sinful men, we read, sinful flesh, in the family of David and Bathsheba, the family of Rahab and Tamar. He didn't keep his distance from wicked men. He didn't issue commands from afar. We find him at the house of Pharisees and again at the house of tax collectors. He dines with them. He's called a glutton and a wine-bibber, so fond is he apparently dining with the chief of sinners. The tax collectors and the harlots are the first in his kingdom. There he is, I mentioned earlier, sitting in a well in Samaria talking to a woman who had five husbands previously and was now shacking up with her boyfriend. His disciples came back from town a little embarrassed, not knowing what to say as Jesus is breaking all societal conventions and offers him some lunch. And Jesus says to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Oh, a mild rebuke. But he explains, you know, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And that means sitting at the well and talking with women who need to hear of me. The mighty Savior un failingly pursued this mission, leaving the 99 and going after the one. He preached, he taught, he loved, he healed, he labored in prayer, he was not ashamed to call sinners like them and us his brethren. He was uh, not only known as the friend of uh, sinners, or maybe I should say reviled as the as the friend of sinners, he gloriously took that to himself. You have no idea. Uh, he was not in any way, though, a friend of scribes and Pharisees. In so many ways, more religious, more righteous, having their own issues, I, I realize. But for those who were corrupting the religion that saved people, right, he has no time whatsoever. The same love that brings him to uh, speak to sinners about their salvation with a little pointedness, but mostly tenderness, that same love causes him to assail the scribes and Pharisees and pronounce woe upon woe to consign them to the flames of hell because not only will they not enter, but they are hindering others who would enter. You see how that same love reaches over great boundaries but uh, throws fiery darts 
at, at others. Yet again, I will, note, I will point you uh, to an illustration of Charles Spurgeon today. This, this one I, I, I wonder about, is not a, it's definitely not a perfect illustration, but it's an illustration that uh, has, has helped me and I've thought about it and I'll, I'll give it to you also, not as a perfect one, but as one that illustrates a, a certain truth. So a murder has been committed and uh, the, let's, let's say the murderer cuts his throat in an attempt just to save the, to save the hangman some work, right? But the policeman and the surgeon are, are called and they get there quickly on the spot. The policeman comes in the interest of the law and the, the surgeon comes in the interest of humanity. The officer of police says, man, you're my prisoner. The doctor says, my dear fellow, you're my patient. And the, the surgeon lays a delicate hand upon the wound. He stops the bleeding. He applies the soft liniments. He binds it. He uh, listens to the man's breathing. He takes hold of his hand. He feels his pulse. He raises the head. He administers some stimulant. He takes him to the hospital. He gives the nurse careful instructions how to watch him and orders that he be given some nutritious diet as soon as he's able to bear it. Day after day, he visits him. He uses all of his skill and diligence to heal the man's wounds. Is that the way to deal with criminals? Spurgeon asks. Certainly it is not the way that a policeman deals. A policeman's business, he says, is to find every trace and evidence of guilt. But the medical attendant is not concerned with the man as an evildoer, but as a sufferer. So, says Spurgeon, is the sinner. Moses is the officer of justice who comes to arrest him. Christ is the good physician who comes to heal him. And he says, O Israel, you have destroyed yourself, but in me is your help. He deals with the disease, with the wounds, with the sufferings of sinners, and he is therefore the sinner's friend. Of course, the parallel will only go so far. In this instance of a murderer, a surgeon would hand the patient over to the officer as soon as the wound was recovered. But in the conduct of our Savior, he redeems the soul from under the law, delivers it from the penalty of sin, and restores it from any injury. But oh, if I could but show you, he writes, that Christ treats the sinner with pity rather than indignation, that the Son of Man is come not to destroy men's lives, but to save them, that his visit to our world was mediatorial, not to condemn, but to give his life as a ransom. Surely then you would see reason enough why the sinner should look to him as a friend indeed. It's an analogy. Uh, a, a, a murderer uh, is very different from a sick person, I, I understand. Uh, Jesus is happy to speak to people about their sin, simply to point out that even when he wounds, he wounds in order to heal. That he has this balance of how he is able to speak in such a way that it's perfectly clear that if Jesus, though Jesus is a, a preacher of righteousness, as Noah was, he is also the source of salvation. Uh, we could take another example very briefly. Paul, he walks into Athens, and he realizes there that this city is just given over to idols. And it says he is provoked in his spirit. It's just burning within him, right? Rivers of tears are going down his eyes because they keep not God's law, right? He is disgusted at what he sees. And what does it lead him to do, right? He's reasoning every day, in the marketplace. When he's invited to go up and speak to the philosophers of Mars Hill, he, he gives a very winsome address. He's burning on the inside, right? He is pleading on the outside. And this tension of uh, truly being tormented in a righteous conscience, right? Hating the sin slash sinner insofar as he is a sinner, and uh, loving uh, the, the sinner, the man, so much as he is a man. This, this difficulty is what it means to be godly in an ungodly world. How to be tormented by sin without tormenting sinners is a great practical challenge. It, in, it requires extraordinary maturity and wisdom. You, you can't 
you can't say to people, particularly in sexual sin, no, I hate the sin but love the sinner. That's the very thing that the modern identity, I can't even, I can't even go, go through all the terminology, right? It's just nonsense. The whole thing is nonsense. But this is what the, the, the whole identity movement seeks to break down, that there is any difference between me and my sin. Oh, yes, there is, we say, right? Uh, on the one hand, we, we, we want to show love and respect to our Muslim neighbors, to people, to our atheist neighbors. We want our churches to be safe places for people in the depths of sin to come to find kindness, right? To find uh, a welcome and a hearing of, of God's word, the power indeed to repent and change that we preach. We, we want them to be able to find illustrations of that, how important that is. We want people steeped in sensuality, drowning in drunkenness. People who have visited Planned Parenthood more times than they would care to admit. People with police records to know that Jesus has come to seek and to save and to delight in their salvation, right? That they will find lavish mercy and full redemption in our churches. We want, we want to show that that, that, that same uh, kindness and grace that our Lord does. And even if we're not a moral majority, we, we hope that all this helps the church more and more to be a missional minority, to realize what we, what we can do for people right now. And this means a couple practical things. That means that when we speak about especially sexual sins, we're not overly focused on sexual sins, that the main issue that we are dealing with is their gaping lack of a relationship with God, that they are under his judgment and not uh, reconciled as his children. That's their great need. Our relationship with God, of course, includes our sexuality, and uh, as the whole person is uh, going to be redeemed, that's an area of redemption as well, but we don't over-focus on sexuality. We also give people hope for something better. We are bearers of good news, of good tidings. We are not just announcing that certain sins are sinful, that we talk about what God has done even in our own lives to bring sinners like us to the Savior like Jesus. Something better needs to come from us, not just forgiveness of sins, but Christ, that learning to be like him and filled with the Spirit in a life with the Father, a life that begins today when we put our trust in Christ. This is the good news that we bear. And so, yes, on the one hand, may your righteous soul be oppressed, burdened, weighed down as you gaze upon the wickedness and the wicked people of this world insofar as they are wicked people, holding on to one hand with approving eyes the judgment that must surely come to swallow up this world as it did that ancient city. And on the other end, hand with tear-dimmed eyes to see the blood that Jesus Christ has poured out for the salvation of sinners, no matter what that wickedness might be. Not ignored, not overlooked, but entirely gloriously forgiven. And to recognize that we stand in that gap and that we are therefore to love men insofar as they are men in need of salvation. Well, I would like to speak less theoretically and a bit more practically in my conclusion by giving you the testimony of a man that was gloriously saved 12 years ago, a man named Beckett Cook. I don't know if you happen to know him or read his book. He's, he's made the rounds a little bit on, you know, some of the blogs and those kinds of things. Uh, 10 years ago, Beckett Cook was a was living the, uh, the gay high life in Hollywood. He had achieved tremendous success as, as a designer in the fashion industry. He worked with stars and supermodels from Natalie Portman to Claudia Schiffer. He traveled the world to design photo shoots for Vogue and Harper's Bazaar magazines. He attended parties at Paris Hilton's house and Prince's house. He spent summers in Drew Barrymore's swimming pool. I mean, he was really in the jet set. A decade later, he had completely moved on from that, didn't miss it at all. What happened? You guessed it. He met the Lord Jesus. It was on a particular day in 2009 
having some coffee with a friend that he started chatting with a group of young people who were sitting at a table, their Bibles opened, they were all from a church having a Bible study, and what was it that made him so ready to receive their word that day? Well, here's his testimony. It was a moment in Paris six months earlier that made him ready. He writes, I was at a fashion party, and I just felt empty. I had done everything in Hollywood, met everyone, traveled everywhere. Yet I was overwhelmed with emptiness at this party. It was one of the most intense, is that all there is, moments in my life. I'd already been wrestling with questions about the meaning of life and searching for it in all sorts of ways. But I knew God was never an option because I was gay. It was off the table. I wasn't confused what the Bible had to say about homosexuality. I, I knew it was clear. But I was still searching for meaning. So when I came to this coffee shop six months later and saw that group of young people with their Bibles open, I started asking them questions. They explained the gospel, what they believed. I asked what their church believed about homosexuality. They explained that they believed it was a sin. I appreciated their honesty and I, that they didn't beat around the bush, but the reason I was able to accept their answer was because I had had that moment in Paris. Five years earlier, I would have been like, you guys are insane, you're in the dark ages. But instead, I was like, maybe I could be wrong. Maybe this actually is a sin. So I was open to it in the moment. And they invited me to church. Jim, Tim Chaddock preached the sermon that day, and everything that he said basically turned what I knew about religion upside down. I grew up in Catholic schools, and I honestly thought that religion was about being a good person and doing good things. I don't think the priests in my high school once explained what the gospel was, not once. So when Tim was preaching all these things, that were the exact opposite of what I thought religion was. I was like, whoa. It all really resonated. And it prompted me to go forward at the end of the service and receive prayer. It was shocking and unexpected to me. A, a road to Damascus moment. It was so powerful, so all-consuming. I was all in. Uh, Tim, the pastor, and I would meet for coffee each week. And though I didn't know why, he was discipling me. That was vital. There were so many others at the church who came around me and supported me and recommended books and sermons and were praying for me. And I'd get random, I'm praying for you today, texts all the time. I joined a community group right away. I, I listened to all of Tim Keller's sermons as well as all of John Stott's and Dick Lucas's. It was a process of people discipling me at my church and God discipling me through these other voices. During that time... After I got saved, I had a three-month period of no work, which was unusual. So I had all this time to spend with God and to read and to pray. I couldn't stop reading the Bible. Every time I'd listen to a sermon or read the Bible, I'd end up in tears. Oh my gosh, this is true, his words. I can't believe that I know God and know the meaning of life, finally. When I was gay... I felt shame. Instinctively, I knew it was wrong. But though I felt shame, over the years, you harden your heart to it. I think the driving force behind these choices, like the rainbow flag and pride parades, the word pride even, is to convince yourself that there's nothing wrong with it, nothing to be ashamed of. You have to constantly tell yourself that and let the culture tell you that because there is shame attached to it. So hyper-emphasizing the rightness of it helps people embrace their identity more, his quotes. I'm always saying, look, if you're going to be on social media or Netflix for an hour, you better read the Bible for an hour because you've just been lied to and now you need the truth. <laughs> to those people who give up on the Lord, I, I 
I first and foremost pray, particularly for those I know, it's so sad to me because you're literally giving up your birthright for a single meal. Do you understand what you're doing? We have to resist the temptation to bow down to the culture that we are in, no matter the cost. I'm not saying this is easy. Some who come out will be super offended when you hold on to your traditional biblical views. The issue is now so deeply tied to identity that it can, can feel like you are rejecting them. I certainly felt that way whenever I remembered that my family, even though they loved me, believed homosexual behavior is a sin. The felt alienated from them. So I think the key is to love your friend unconditionally, no matter what, and to pray for them. That's what my sister-in-law did for me. She was an evangelical Christian, and she knew that, uh, and sorry, and knew that I knew what her beliefs were on sexuality. She held the orthodox view. But I never felt an ounce of judgment from her over those years. She loved me, and she prayed for me for 20 long years, and it worked. When we are regenerated, our affections change, not just in the area of sexuality, but in everything else, our attitude toward money, success, relationships. In terms of so-called conversion therapy, I don't think it's something we should force. I still struggle with same-sex attraction, he writes, even though it has greatly diminished and no longer dominates my thought life like it did before God saved me. But God can do anything. He created the universe, and he can reorient our attractions. Sometimes I pray that God would just heal the brokenness in me, especially given that I was molested when I was a child by a friend's father, which I think had a larger effect on my sexual development than I used to admit. Who knows? God may change all my desires one day. We'll see. But for now, I'm happy just to be single and celibate and to take up my cross and follow Jesus. It was such a relief for me when I was at last in this relationship with Christ. It didn't feel costly because I was so full of joy, but it did cost me some friends and some deep lifelong relationships. A lot of my friends were semi-supportive, but some of my closest friends were not. That was painful. But at the time I was so euphoric, I didn't care. I was cut off from several people and some of the closest friends of my life. But the gain is like Paul said. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's his hope. Is that yours? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your marvelous word, the truth that sets us free, the, the truth that helps us to negotiate uh, difficult choices and conversations and relationships in a fallen and dying world. We thank you for the many, many encouragements that you have given to us, your many exhortations lined with grace, and we thank you that above all these promises of salvation and eternal life stand, promises which never fail, though we, like righteous Lot, fail you in important ways. We pray that you would bless the church, which remains in great peril, with ungodly men seeking to bring it to an ungodly end. We pray that you would purify your church and cleanse your truth from unbelief and unrighteousness. We pray that you would sanctify us as Christian soldiers, and we pray that this truth might shine all the more clearly here in this church and through us from generation.